The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Thanks, Aaron. I don't know, um, I mentioned this last week, but um, I don't know if you are into all the uh, normal Christmas things like uh, watching certain shows or certain traditions that you do. I was mentioning even, you know, we, we have like major traditions, don't we? Like even down to like Starbucks Christmas cups. Those are like things we look for now for uh, those kind of things. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that um, has been around for ages is the Grinch. And um, it's actually taken on a quite a few forms, iterations of itself. Uh, I remember actually uh, the cartoon of the Grinch when I was a kid freaked me out. Like, I don't know if you remember or if you watch it now. Dude is me. Like some of those cartoons, like even I mentioned Charlie Brown, those kids are mean to Charlie Brown. And the Grinch is mean to his dog. Like there's just, there's some meanness there. And I guess that's the whole point, drawing the meanness out. But uh, I remember when he smiled and his smile just curled and I was like, man, this is freaking me. I'm supposed to watch this? Like, what is this doing for me about Christmas? You know, um, I, I learned recently that the Grinch actually uh, was um, intended to be a poem in a commercial, uh, in a, um, not even a TV commercial, in Red Book, the magazine, uh, in 1955. It was just something that was written up and it was called The Hubboob and the Grinch or something about that. It was, had to do with advertising and what to buy and not to buy. And, and you kind of see that come out. Like if you've seen uh, any iteration of the Grinch, book or otherwise, cartoons, you see that there's a lot of the, um, the story of the Grinch is just tired of Christmas. And if I get rid of that, I get rid of all the noise, all the hubbub, all the materialism. And then he realizes, you know, at the end, um, if I'm ruining it for you, that's kind of sad. But I hope you've, you've seen it before or no, but maybe I will. The Grinch uh, actually realizes that Christmas still comes. The Who's are still singing. And he goes, well, as he says in uh, all of the iterations of it, he says, well, maybe Christmas, the Grinch thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas is something more, you know. And it, it, you realize in those moments that, that, that happens often, there's this tug, this, this, this tug of war, this push and pull between what Christmas kind of is with the materialism and shopping and working through stores and hearing the songs. And yet there's all this like, hey, but keep the Christmas spirit and be loving and kind and gentle, you know, and you're like, okay, which is it? And how do we balance that? And what does that really mean? And it seems like it, that's been going on for ages. Uh, C.S. Lewis, even the, the great thinker, theologian, writer, wrote about the materialism of Christmas and how we get wrapped up in it and what it's about, driving back to, okay, what is Christmas about? And I know at, in it, we're in a church there's a pastor standing up here. You expect me to say Jesus, and that is true. That is correct, but why? Like, how do we really have our hearts recentered on, on what Christmas really is so that we can actually enjoy gifts and actually see our character change and not just one or the other? Not just get drowned in the materialism and that. You know, Isaiah is a book we're looking at right now. It's an Old Testament book, and I'm going to read another passage from it. We looked at uh, a passage from it 
uh, last week, and we're going to look at it today and the next week, moving on in, uh, in Advent. This is our third week in what the church, and our church in particular, celebrates in the arrival, the Advent, what that means. And Isaiah is an Old Testament book that spans a ton of time, lots of time, different kings, different problems of Israel's history. But some of the bigger watermarks of that are where Israel just loses hope. There's a superpower on the rise that they see in the horizon. They see their power diminishing. They once had their hearts really excited about God and his, who he was and them being his people. But now they've kind of lost and they're kind of thinking, oh, maybe there's other things that, that really allure us. Yeah, we're, we would call ourselves God's people, but idolatry and, and, things, and new kings that have arisen are, are kind of more important to them. And so God sends these addresses, like we saw last week and this week, about the servant, someone who's going to come and actually bring them back to this. Bring them back to the excitement, the joy, the, the reality. Bring them to justice and, and truth. And it's all, though, through the contrast. You mentioned this earlier. Through the contrast, you'd think it would be this great king. In fact, the chapter before what I'm about to read is all about a great king, Cyrus, who's there. He's powerful. And yet, when it comes to chapter 42, in the first few verses, it talks about a servant. The complete contrast of who we would think God would bring to draw them out. So we're going to look at three things. And when I read this passage from Isaiah 42 and verses 1 through 9, we're going to try and catch these three things. The contrast of the servant, the character of the servant, and the covenant of the servant. Contrast, the character, and, and the covenant. This is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to who, those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness." I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, there are a few things, and hopefully you caught them in here, and maybe you, you can catch them, but there's a contrast in here of something that went before. And, and you, we don't use this kind of language, but you see it, the very first verse and the very last verse. Behold! <laughs> that is something you think that uh, someone would say maybe in the Bible, but it means more than that. It means look. Take a look at. I, I, as I 
you know, get older and older and I um, am driving around with my children in the car, I recollect things, and I still do this from time to time, where I'd see like a, a giant excavator or a deer in the woods, or I'm outside and there's a helicopter flying out. And I'm like, hey, 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 look, look, there's a helicopter. And we're like pointing out like very obvious things. But you do that for little kids to be like, oh, oh there's a helicopter, right? There's a deer. There's a giant excavator. So much so that I remember even uh, years past um, at my children being very young and driving by something and going, hey, look, look, a, a digger, digger. That's what we used to call the excavator. Digger, digger. And they're like, why are you saying that? Like, <laughs> yes, it digs dirt, you know. But what are we doing? We're saying, look, behold. That's actually what the word means. And it's giving us a sharp contrast. In fact, every single theologian would tell you from this language, behold, and then to whom I uphold, means to seize, to take, to grab. It's to get your attention because right before this, the entire chapter is riddled with other, look, behold. Isaiah 41, verse 29, the one right before this, it says this, listen. Behold, they are all delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. What it's talking about is that the people of Israel in this chapter have turned to what's called idolatry. They've turned to idols. And oftentimes in prophetic books, this is called a prophetic book, a prophet Isaiah, you have this kind of mark of the progression of it. And so what it does in the Old Testament particularly is it's almost like a courtroom setting. It's like you're entering in and the people of God have strayed. And so the books of the prophets bring them in and the prophets are like lawyers and, and oftentimes not looked at favorably because what they would do is they would bring God's word to them and they'd bring them into the court of the Lord and the witnesses that were interesting that were brought against the people of Israel are oftentimes creation and God's law. And things that maybe we wouldn't think of, you might think of the law, but creation speaks against it. And the reason is, is because what an idol, the definition of an idol is, is taking something of creation and putting it in the place of the creator. It's trying to give it creator qualities. And it could be good things. It could be wonderful things that we do that with. It could be gifts of God. It could be wonderful things that, that we, we are given. But, but it's saying to us, and, and as A.W. Tozer said, God's gifts now take the place of God. And the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. In other words, when we do that, what we're doing is we're really messing, not only with our own lives and our view of the thing that we're beholding, but the thing that it's for, we're missing it. It could be a good gift that God gives us and we totally wreck it because we try and make it everything. And so when it begins by saying, behold my servant, it's trying to draw us out. It's trying to say there's something different about this servant than what you've previously worshiped. Something different than the idols you, you view. And, 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 and I think this is a really good thing for Christmas. This passage is, and here's why. Because of what we just talked about with the Grinch, we have a hard time 
with, yes, we may call ourselves Christians and we may come to church or recognize Advent and maybe even come every Advent service. And maybe we're like, man, I'm dead set on coming to Christmas Eve and worship is a part of that. But we also in our lives have this intermingled thing of the presence of other things we actually worship pragmatically. So that we may say, oh, I love Christmas because it's so sweet and it's tender and it points me in the right direction. But really, what holds our worship? What holds us? Where is it that we go, look, what draws our attention? What really holds us there to, to take forward? And it may be something that we take that we, we kind of don't know that we worship it until it's threatened. That's actually what something really idolatrous is until it's really threatened. And it may not be, and we think of idol worship here, and it draws it out in that passage, a delusion, uh, their, their works are nothing. The metal images are empty when It talks about metal there. But really, listen to what it says. Behold, they are delusion, confused. Their works are nothing. See, these things that, in contrast, we look to to give us direction, to give us something weighty. And yet he says, behold my servant whom I uphold. The word uphold means to grip fast. It means God is saying that, look, in contrast, empty wind to something you can grip. Have you ever tried to grab the wind? (laughs) I know that sounds so dumb. Have you ever tried to grab something in the wind? Or been outside when, when something's blown away or off like a, a sheet of paper or something like that. And you're just, you just, you just feel like, is somebody watching me or filming this? Because this looks really awkward right now. You know, that you're trying to stop whatever it is the wind is blowing away to get into your grip. That's the exact notion of what the Lord wants us to understand. When idols are worshiped, when these things that we think are good gifts from God, we put them in an elevation point of, this really gives me more than what God is giving me. That's what we're doing. We're trying to run after to grab it. And that's why God uses even this language of contrast to say, not only behold my servant, look at him, but whom I uphold, whom I grip fast, who's tangible, who's there to hold, to touch, and does not leave. And not only that, He goes on to say, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The language that's put here is so unusual. My chosen in whom my soul delights. Have you ever thought about God's soul delighting in something? What does God delight in? What does God love? (laughs) What does he care about? If you ever wonder that question, he's expressing it right here. My chosen in whom my soul delights. The very essence of God delights in the servant. A mark different. Look, look at my servant. Take a look. Here is what I delight in. Yes, and, and I think this is a huge thing. God gives us good things. But what he wants us to do is not delight in the good things, but in the one who gives them. And so notice what he's doing. He's drawing away the delight to the servant. Behold, look at where my soul delights. 
Not that your gifts aren't good, but they are not the ultimate delight of my soul and should be of yours. That this servant holds that delight. In fact, it harkens back to the New Testament. And if you ever wonder how the Old and New Testament fit together, there are passages like this one that are all over. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can read some of this in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke really draw this out a little bit more. Jesus is actually coming out for the first time to show his ministry. And he comes to a guy named John the Baptist who is baptizing people. And John the Baptist recognizes, oh, this is the one. This is the, the true servant of God. And he at first seizes up and Jesus says, no, 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 you need to baptize me. And he comes into the river and all of a sudden it says that the heavens opened and it looked as though the spirit of God descended on him like a dove. Notice, and I have put my spirit upon him. And there was a word from heaven that said, this is my son and who I am well pleased. If there's something that we long for in this world, it's to hear someone say to us how much they have pleasure in us. We have grown up all our lives longing for that. Listening for it, wanting it, going to, to therapy for it, asking one another for it, reaching over. And here's something that's incredible about what Jesus, the servant, hears and never loses, is you have my pleasure. That the heavenly father speaks and puts on this servant his full delight Different than anything else in all the world, it is on him. And it is laid on him. There is a contrast between who this person is and then anything else. And there's never a moment, if you notice in Jesus' ministry, where he questions that delight. Where he is insecure about it. Where he's, in any moment, kind of, Wondering, oh, is God, what does God think of me? What, what does everybody think of me? And the reason is, is because he, different than anything else in all of creation, notice even the disciples who follow him for years are like, hey, can I, can I have can a, a slice of this big, you know, awesome uh, ministry you're doing? And he's like, do you understand the ministry I'm doing? I'm gonna have to die and go to the cross. A contrast. And yet never for a moment does Jesus question, am I the delight of my father? He is a contrast. Whereas all of, notice, idols create delusion in us to think, what really brings me pleasure? The servant brings true delight in whom we are to look to. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. You know what's interesting, not only about the contrast of who this servant is, but the kind of quality and character that the servant exudes. And if there's anything in verses one through four that really kind of draw out, it's, it's, it's not maybe something that you think. It's the word justice. I don't know if you caught that. It was repetitive. 
End of verse one. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse two. He will not cry aloud and lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, I don't know what kind of Christmas cards you're creating or what kind of words you're putting on them, but I know it's probably different than putting, can you imagine if you put justice on your card? Like instead of like peace and joy and merry or bright, you know, it's like justice. Like that would be a card. I would, some of you now may do it because of that, but um, I'd love to receive one and see how it's taken and what kind of photo you have in it. But that, if there's something about Jesus, the servant's ministry that does mark his card here, it is justice. And that is really radically different from the character that you would think or typically think of the servant. But it continues to go on as it says here. And what kind of justice? Like when you read that and you go, okay, Justice, what does he mean by that? For a lot of us, we may have in our head, okay, things that are wrong are made right. It's a pretty simple definition. But I think that the, the definition of justice here is to bring truth revealed to all across the board. And notice, this is written about the servant. So these first four verses are about the servant. They're describing his character. Who is he gonna be? And the marked difference is that he's just. He's bringing justice. It's the reality of God's truth for how life is most to work and flourishing. This is what the servant's supposed to do. And see, I love it. This is what it's supposed to mean. Because justice is not what we would expect. And yet, here's the character of this servant, and yet how the justice plays out is unparalleled. Because justice to us is getting it right. Uh, we would think, I mean, if you got a card saying justice, you would feel like that is harsh. <laughs> but his justice is to bring revealed truth of the Lord to bring us into its fullness. And that means everyone. That means across the board. Tim Keller wrote a book um, on actually idols and idolatry. And he spoke about Christmas in this way too, a little bit about it. And he said this, he's a pastor in New York City. I love how he wrote this. He said, no one is neutral about whether Christmas is true. If the son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost the right to change, to be in charge of our lives. Who can be objective about that claim? If it is true, it means you've lost control of your life. You can't be in control. If Jesus really is the chosen one in whom the Lord delights and he's bringing justice, what justice means is he is what he says, the way, the truth, and the life. And what he means by that is that there is an exclusivity of it. And I think it is fascinating. It still is to me. And I'm, I'm 
look, I'm guilty of the same, that I walk around malls and hear songs that proclaim the justice of what we're singing in here in those malls as we're caring about our business. Not that we need to fall down where we are and, and, and pray in the moment in the middle of a store, but, but the fact that if this is really true, and this is what the justice means, if this servant really is the delighted one in God who sent for us in Jesus, then the advent, Christmas, the arrival of this one should radically change the way we see our lives. Because his character is markedly different. And notice how he brings in this justice. He says, he will first, in verse two, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not one to point back to himself. Look, most of the time when we talk about justice, we talk about things that point back to how can we make ourselves bigger? How can we make ourselves bigger so that I matter? That's what most justice kind of does, if we think about it. It's supposed to help people, but oftentimes what it does is it can put a cause or a certain person in the center rather than what it's supposed to do is, is disperse that justice. Here's what's interesting. This one who's gonna bring justice, who will bring forth justice to the nations, that means everywhere, is not going to put himself in the middle. He's gentle. He's humble. His character and his quality are completely different. It's unaggressive. It's unthreatening. And unthreatening in a way not of getting in the face of people. It threatens plenty of people in the Gospels, if you notice. It threatens all the people who think they have their idea of how the world should work. But notice, Jesus never uses force or threatening to bring about the justice. He never has to put himself in the center. He never has what, what many, and I've read this in an article recently called the fame motive. I thought this was interesting. The fame motive, the strange and twisted way that there's so much of attention wanting to point to ourselves. The irony of what was once private with the ongoing of social media or anything else is, is become more public. So we want to become more public. And when we do, we want to become more private. We don't know what to do. But Jesus, in his justice, in the way that he carries out revealed truth, flourishing for those around him, is not by making himself better than everyone else and pushing others down to do so. And notice in even verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Bruised but not broken. Bruised but not destroyed. A wick that's being extinguished yet unlike everyone else before him, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And he does so by not wearing out but by wearing suffering and injustice out. If you want to know what Christianity does different and what this is trying to uphold as the servant and what it's trying to tell to the people of Israel and even the chapters before this is that this servant is going to come and not just bring forth a hammer but through their suffering and through their difficulty and through their receiving injustice they're going to bring justice. They're going to wear it out and not falter in ways that everyone else before them went. 
This one will take on injustice. He doesn't push down the weak. He becomes weak. Isn't that reminding you of someone? Someone who is born? What Advent is about? Why does Jesus have to be born? You read this about the servant, and you think, here he comes, out of the clouds. Here comes this powerful, strong, just domineering. No, Christmas is about the Lord Jesus being born. And he becomes vulnerable and hurtable and bruised and goes through the difficulties of life itself in order to bring actual revealed truth to us. That justice for us, to mend us. That's what this justice is, is to mend you. And here's the thing, notice, it says he will not grow faint or discouraged till he establishes justice in the earth. I wanna remind us, when it talks about justice here, it's not talking about out there. Yes, it's talking about things like in Ukraine. Yes, it is talking about major issues in our city of poverty and trafficking and all sorts of things that we think of when we think of those kinds of justice. It's also talking about the injustice in every corner of our lives and to the world. That's why it even says, and to the coastlands, wait for his law. The injustice isn't just out there, it's here. It's the way that this whole, the cracks and everything are filled. No plan, no social plan, no governmental plan, no idea, no ideology, no philosophy can get into the spaces that this servant does with his justice. This is the character of him. And he doesn't do it by forcing it in, but by coming underneath and living in it and through it and redeeming it as it is. How brilliant of God to come into the injustice to save us through that. And he does it with that deep, powerful relationship that he has with us from the beginning. And this is what he says here. He says, I am the Lord. I've called you to righteousness in verse six. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of that are blind, to bring the prisoners out of the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He mentions this word covenant in here. And this is the word of relationship. It is to speak of the servant and who he is. That the covenant is a relationship. It's, it's something maybe you've heard before. It's, it deals with, maybe you've seen it in a wedding ceremony or something like that, where there are these words and vows and relationship. And even in fact, the whole Bible unpacks in what's called a story of relationship from beginning to end of God's almost marital faithfulness. And there's language all through Isaiah of when the people of God decide to go towards idols, that they're they're committing adultery towards God because there's this language of relationship. This language that's marital. And when I do weddings, and even if some of you in here have, I, I even haven't done your wedding before, I'll send you off in a, uh, a ceremony. And it has in that the language vow, uh, in, during the vows. And it says things like, this I do promise and covenant. When we read those things, when we hear those things, we're, 
we're knowing that the theme of the Bible is saying that there's a relationship where God says, I'm gonna bind myself to these people. These are my people. Long before Isaiah, long before this, God said, you are my people and I will be your God. And in a covenant, and if you notice even in a wedding ceremony, this says, till death do us part. And the reason it does is that in every covenant, biblically or even outside of it, there are terms of a covenant. You do this even when you set up things for your home or a contract with people. And if, there, if you don't manage that well, there are consequences for that relationship. But the difference here is the difference between a contract and a covenant is that there's a deep, profound relationship. David Brooks wrote an article some time ago about how covenants make us. He's an uh, op-ed writer for the New York Times, and he was writing about how covenants make us in the New York Times. I thought this was amazing. That's what he said. When we go out to and do a deal and we make a contract, we are doing a situation within something, and it's because we have made a covenant. A contract protects interests, uh, as an author noticed, but a covenant protects relationships. A covenant exists between people who understand they are part of one another. It involves a vow to serve the relationship that is sealed by love. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people. He's quoting that from the Bible in the New York Times. I thought it was awesome. That is a covenant. Your people It's a representation. It's a story of that relationship that God keeps his faithfulness to us. But here's what's amazing about it. What happens in this passage is it doesn't just say he's gonna have a covenant. It's saying that this suffering servant is our covenant. I don't know if you saw that language. It says about this one, you... I have called you by right in, you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. And the reason he does that is because in a covenant, if you broke that covenant, you would suffer the terms and have a severed relationship. But to give someone, to put someone in that place, to be a representation of that, rep, of that relationship changes everything. This is why I say to couples, it's very different to have two Christians in a relationship and to have a Christian relationship. Because you can be Christian and have a lot of religiosity and good quips and ways to approach each other, but unless you have a mediator, someone in the middle of your relationship, you will always try and go and keep the terms of that covenant relationship through your own power. And what God is doing beautifully is saying, I'm putting all of the covenant on this servant. Meaning that this one, this servant, this Jesus, will be your covenant. And the way that he keeps this relationship and the ways that you have failed, he will keep it and you will have my relationship. All the delight, all the soul of God delighting in this servant is now ours because Jesus is our covenant. And guess what? When we come to this table, we taste and see the ways that Jesus has taken all the penalties, all the consequences, all the ways we have broken that covenant relationship. 
This is a marked contrast of anything before. The character of our King and God and Savior is at this table. And the covenant relationship that you have with God through his arrival, him coming in flesh, is yours. And you are reminded of it at this table. This table shows the justice, the mending through his being torn apart. It shows the character of someone who's providing you a brand new character in him the love that is yours. And behold, your Savior comes. He comes born in a manger. That even the trash who were the shepherds, the angels went to bring in. Because it was for all. No matter where you are in this room, this table is for you. If you look to this servant as the one who is yours, This relationship, this covenant is made for you. You don't have to to do anything for it. You just have to trust and believe in him. That's all he asks. Turn your faith to him. Away from those things. We all struggle with idols in here. Not one of us can come to this table and say, "Mm, I don't struggle. That's not what gets you to this table. What gets you to this table is the one who has said it. That is the one who is our covenant, who is Jesus Christ, the one who has been born of a Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together.